Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Welcome to a bonus edition of On the Tape. I am Dan Nathan. I am here with a very good friend of mine, Tony Dwyer. He is the chief strategist at Canaccord Genuity, and he is the founder of DwyerStrategy.com. Tony, welcome back to On the Tape. Dan, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, buddy. Well, I'm glad we're doing this face-to-face here. You're going to be on CNBC's Fast Money with us later today. And it's interesting, you know, you had a video out on Dwyer Strategy this morning. That's DwyerStrategy.com, people. And you were talking about landings from a pilot's perspective. Now, just so you know, listener, Tony flew here. He flew here from parts unknown in upstate New York. You are a pilot. How long have you been a pilot for? I've been a pilot since 2013. Yeah, My son and I are both pilots. It's crazy, right? And I remember actually you and your son flew down to the show. This was pre-pandemic. At the time, you were trying to spend more time in upstate New York. You live in, That's right. in, a, in a cabin in the woods up there. And so what do you just, do you keep your plane like under a tarp and you just kind of pull it off <laughs> and you take off in the middle of the night and head no, down to no, do some, thank some God. Wall Street stuff? <laughs> thank God, Dan, there's a hangar that it gets put in. Now we have a home up in the Adirondacks and during COVID, you could do anything. So we spend a lot of time up there. We live in New Jersey. My wife and I, the kids have moved out, but we have a great time flying. And there's so many analogies that you could make to the financial market. It's like any adrenaline-based thing. You can either wing it and have it go sideways potentially, or you have a checklist. Like, what do you look at to make sure you have a successful flight or a successful dive? Or if you're parachuting, a, a successful skydive? There's a checklist, and that's what I do for the market, so it'd fit right in. As long as I've known you, you've never really been winging it here, man. You were, like, very deliberate. And it's funny. I'll, I'll just say this. You know, I mean, Guy and I, we do these pods almost every day. We're on CNBC a lot. We're active on social. And, you know, it's really funny. It takes all kinds to do this sort of stuff. You have to have thick skin in a way. And I remember when you were coming on Fast Money Probably back in 15, 16, and the markets were really volatile, and macro really was dominating the day. And and I feel like we're in that sort of period right now. But I remember you used to come on and make these tactical calls. And I remember if you got it wrong, you know what I mean? You say, I I got it wrong, and let me tell you why. And I think that's such an important part of doing this. You know what I mean? It's just being transparent, being articulate about the reasons why you are kind of expressing a view that you are. Talk to me a little bit about that, because a lot of strategists will talk out of both sides of their mouth. They'll keep pointing to this broader framework that they have, and they don't like to change things up too much, but they're saying different things at different times to different clients who might have different time horizons. I can't speak to other strategists. For me, it comes down to one thing. I've been doing this thing since 1987. I've been involved in Wall Street. I got to Wall Street in 1987 at Prubeche, and I watched the greatest strategists, economists, and technicians really in the history, Greg Smith, Ed Yardeni, and a guy named Joe Feshbach, and then Ralph Akinpora. And here's what it really comes down to, Dan. I got to understand what my job is. My job isn't to tell you whether you should do something or not. It's to give you how that I get to that conclusion so that you can employ it by yourself. I don't want you to have the opportunity to blame me or anybody else for what you do. It should be all about your own process. And I, I don't 
believe I have any of the answers. I just want to be a part of your thinking process to get you to the right outcome for what you want. Well, that's really important. And again, as someone who started in this business in the late 90s, on the buy side, you know, I had a lot of interaction with a lot of sell side analysts, a lot of salespeople, a lot of strategists. And I don't think, you know, it makes a whole heck of a lot of sense to take a strategist and just kind of think about only their targets and their estimates. It really thinks yeah. like the thought process is, is really, really important. And then how that meshes with kind of what you're thinking and how that might um, influence you. All right, let's talk about this because as a strategist, Tony, what's the lens that you usually think? Do you think through an economic lens or do you think through a market lens? You know, a lot of fundamental investors, they have either a bottoms up view on the company level and a tops down view on a macro level and they kind of meet in the middle. What do you lean more towards economics or kind of what the market's telling you? I've got to have a very solid base of the macro forecast that doesn't change. And, and here's why that is, Dan. And then I, I adjust it tactically. And I'll, I'll explain last year how I did that if you want. And it's all in print again. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll pull this shameless plug on DwyerStrategy.com. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> we, we are shameless here. Come on. Um, so what happens to people like me and investors is they think that they have a view. And when the view goes against them, I used to flip. When I was younger, I would flip. I'm like, oh, my God, my ego would get involved. And now I'm wrong. I'm not helping anybody. I look like an idiot. I'm going to lose my job. Here comes a cardboard box. Yeah. The problem that we have, it's sort of like right now. People are saying the trading range is 3,800 to 42 or 4,300, right? Let's see if they're saying that at 3820. That's right. Right. And the problem is when the market goes against you, when you have an underlying thesis, if it's not backed by data that is really solid. Now, it can be wrong. Like you said, I'm good at being wrong. And I'll admit it. I've got to have a very firm view based on the data. And then I can adjust based on sentiment, different oscillators, different technical or ta I call it tactical frameworks. So for now, if, if you remember last time I did this show with you, Danny and Guy, it was the, the mega cap tech stocks were blowing out to the upside. And I was taking a lot of heat because I was getting pretty defensive. And it was defensive because it didn't make a lot of sense to me. So fast forward, I've maintained that defensive posture really for the bulk of the last year because it takes money to buy things, do things, and invest in things. So where are you going to find the money if the Fed is tightening to the greatest degree, the fastest tightening cycle in the last nine cycles, banks are tightening their lending standards, and you know the markets are kind of gotten hit, and you're already at full employment. Where's that new money going to come from? So what I'm doing now is I'm in this defensive posture, but there are times when you can get too oversold. I've never known you to be one who presses lows. I've been on the street a long time. Most of the market participants are long only, right? They're just, they need risk assets to go up. Now, the pocket that I started in, maybe it ruined me as an investor or not, is like, you could go the other way. And then you employ different tools in which to express those views to go the other way. And so having those set of tools to be bearish, it doesn't mean if you're long only, that means you're underweight, right? You just have like cash and that can hurt on the way up here. But, you know, like the idea of pressing lows because you have the ability to do it, or as a strategist saying, you know, back in October when the S&P was down a little more than 20% on the year or so, if you were saying, we're going straight to 3,000 right here when we were 3,650 or something like that, that was a really hard thing to do. I at least try to wait for a bit of a bounce, which is what I did into December and then kind of got a little bit bearish again. But I just want to talk about markets here because I think we're kind of in an interesting setup right now. The S&P 500, as I look, this is Tuesday afternoon, is up 4.5% on the year, okay? It's down 
okay, a, a few percent in just the last week or so. At one point, it literally felt like we we're going to be up double digits on the year. That was after being down 20% last year. We basically closed in the technical definition of a bear market. The NASDAQ, which was down, I think, 30-some percent at its lows last year, was just up about 15% on the year. Now it's only up about 10%. So it feels like some of the animal spirits that were just very evident in January have kind of abated a little bit. A lot of that has to do with rates. And I know that you want to talk about rates because at some point this year, I think investors kind of finally got the memo that Fed funds of 5% might stay up there higher for longer, right? That's the thing. And you know, this goes back to, let's talk about last year. We had some big rallies, double digit rallies. We had March to April, we had June to August, and we had October to December. All of them kind of coincided with this idea that, you know, sentiment was really bad. Maybe estimates had come down hard enough. Maybe the Fed wasn't going to have to stay or or keep raising at the pace in which they did. And they were going to pivot at some point. Well, that's out the window. So talk to me about that scenario, because I feel like we literally just capped off a very similar rally to those last three periods I just mentioned. Well, the breadth was stronger, Dan. I got to say, the you've got some breadth for us. Walter Deemer stuff about the 10-day advanced decline line was two to one. So that and so explain that to me. What so so that's a big difference, right? So when you're looking when, when you're talking about market breadth, I mean that's just a healthier situation when you have more stocks rallying. Yeah. And I know that one of the concerns that you've had over different periods of the time over the last few years is that too few stocks were doing too much of the heavy lifting. So the yeah. exact opposite it, happened. It actually, last few it's, it's actually true now, even in this year. But it was a broad rally. So Dan, something's going to be epically wrong here. Either the macroeconomic indicators that are suggesting a recession, I'm in that camp, are going to be epically wrong, and I can rattle them off for you in a minute if you want, or the technical ones are going to be that where you had this breath that's called a breath thrust, the move up in so many stocks, that's going to be epically wrong. So it's very bifurcated. You're either going into a recession or you're not going to look back. So here's why I'm, I'm in the recession camp. The Fed has raised rates in the fastest degree in history into a generationally levered system with bloated inventories. That was our call from last June when as soon as Jerome Powell, I I called it, invoked his inner Volcker, like he pulled in the inner Volcker. He's talked about how Paul Volcker raised rates, inverted the curve, and shut down the economy to curtail inflation. Volcker, it was bad enough when he did it in the early 1980s. That was a generationally unlevered system. You would drop the debt to GDP from the war down to the early 1980s. Now we're in a generationally levered system. So the idea that you can shut down a generationally levered system where a lot of it you can't see because it's in the private credit market made no sense to me and it still doesn't. To me, the idea that we're going to go into a soft landing and that's the bull thesis doesn't hold a lot of water because I think that's a worst case scenario. That means the Fed is going to have to continue to fight inflation and they're going to continue to raise rates. And then the pushback would be, but the market on the Fed Fund's futures market is saying, what? Fed Fund future market was at 3.6% for peak rates in July. It got up to four and seven eighths about two weeks ago, and now it's at five and a quarter on its way to five and a half. You just said the soft landing scenario is the worst case scenario because the Fed needs to continue to keep their foot on the pedal. Okay. And what's really interesting, you think about October at the lows, it was hard landing, recession happening, 
first half of 2023, okay? So then we turn the calendar, markets rallied, financial conditions ease a whole heck of a lot, right? If you think about yields came in, the dollar came in, and and that made sense to me because consensus then became really focused on that scenario, and then stocks started to rally in January, and then we got bank earnings, and they weren't as bad as some people expected because estimates had already come down a lot because they had been pricing in a harder sort of landing. So going back to your point right now, the sentiment shifted. We do have now, with rates going higher and, and unemployment why, staying really low. But why are rates low, going higher? Well, you tell the me. The whole That's what, thing yeah. here, Dan, is we got what the market wished for, and it was the worst case scenario. Yeah. You got better services out of the S&P Global data today. Yeah. There's been higher inflation because consumer spending is held up with higher credit card debt and pulling down to savings and spending. So the consumer and services has been strong. You're getting the soft landing scenario. I don't have to guess that it's well, a worst-case scenario. Right Look what now, it's doing. It feels like the soft landing scenario, but we haven't even had, you know, like the ultimately, because if you're right on inventories, and it, let's just say, and we haven't even talked about the, the employment situation here, okay? Yeah, yeah. Because I that's, that that, I know, I want to I want to get you on that, because that's the thing that could really change the narrative pretty dramatically. But it's you already, you don't need to guess, Dan. We got the better economic data that's slower. What did it lead to? A spike in the interest rates where the two years making a cycle high right this moment. I think it's a 473. It's at 473. Okay. So I don't have to guess what the impact of a soft landing is going to be. It's in our face today. Market's down, you know, almost 2%. If it's not down 2% right now, I don't have a screen in front of me. It's down 2% with a spike in rates on a soft landing. So I don't have to guess what the worst case scenario is. That's it. The best case scenario to me is going to be, listen, we're a year year and change into this. So to get Armageddon bearish right now makes no sense to me. Our input to the hedge fund community or partnerships has been, or individual investors is be light and tight, cut back your exposure, be pretty close to the benchmarks. Don't make any big bets. And the outsized bets have been wiped out in the volatility. And for the long only funds, be slightly defensive and be underweight the mega cap tech stocks. By slightly defensive, that means, Dan, you've done this for a long time. If you're really negative and the market's going down and it's time to buy, you can't do it because all you do is neutralize and you feel like it's a bull trade, right? You can't double buy to get positive when you're already really negative. I want to be able to attack this low. We're a year and change into this. Now is not the time to get super negative, even if the market makes a new low, which I think it will. I want to buy the new low. And the reason is it started out with good news is bad news, meaning Fed, right? Then bad news is good news. Okay, we could have a soft landing and the Fed will stop raising rates. And the only reason that that was viable to me is you didn't have enough time progress. You don't go from one end of the pendulum and swing it all the way to the other end immediately. So you go from a fast economy to a slow economy to a negative economy. So bad news became good news. There's a point at the end of the decline where bad news is bad news. And that's where you want to go into attack on the bull side. All right. Let's talk about this, though, because, again, we've seen some hot economic readings of late. And I think that's kind of changed the tune a little bit. Hotter than expected. Hotter than expected. But really, maybe the disinflation that Fed Chair Powell spoke about a couple weeks ago, what, 13, 14 times in his presser, I think it's causing some people to say, okay, well, you know, listen, geopolitical stuff has caused a lot of market palpitations over the last year and change here. And we might be on the precipice of 
that all over again. And so like we're starting to see a little bit of a firming up of some of those inflation readings. And just think about the data that we're going to get this week. At the end of this week, we're going to have consumer confidence. We're going to have new home sales. We're going to have PCE. What if all of them are just maybe not as bad or as cool as expected? Maybe they come in a little hot. Is that the sort of thing that keeps rates higher and they might really peel off some of these equity gains that we've seen? And that's idea. And I think that's what we're seeing when you take the two-year to the highest level of the cycle after it's already gone up so much, that's telling you that some of that fear is being discounted. But the bull story is that you're hot enough right now that the Fed gets aggressive enough. You have to have the Fed significantly cut rates to have a significant and sustainable new bull market, in my opinion. And the reason for that is it takes money. Real liquidity is historically weak. Money supply is negative year over year for the first time in history. The market have been weak net-net over the course of the last 12 months, and we're already at full employment. So if you're at full employment, you're not going to get excess money from more people working. If you can't get it from a bank because lending standards are tight, you can't get it there. If you can't take it out of the stock market because you're already down, and your money supply, meaning your bank accounts, are dwindling, where are you going to get the money for that next leg? That's why you actually need a recession. I hate to say it that way, but you need a recession because that's what builds up that money availability to really kickstart growth. Now, the problem in this cycle, and and I hope that this, I can explain this right for the listeners, is this. Interest rates were so low for so long. The Fed was actually buying mortgage debt in a housing boom. Okay. So if $40 billion a month for for 2020 and 2021. So I give talks, as you know, to big groups of people. At every talk I ask, raise your hand if your mortgage rate is below three and a half percent. And literally every hand goes up. And shame on the people that that didn't Didn't do it because it it was there for so long, right? What kickstarts a cycle typically is the Fed lowers rates aggressively and you can have a refi boom. People that have a mortgage at a higher rate the rates come down, they refine, take a little bit of equity out that was built up over the prior cycles. And that's terrific. I've done it three times in my life. Okay. Here's the problem. If everybody's mortgage rate is 3% to three and a quarter percent, given the traditional spread between the 10-year note yield and the mortgage, 30-year fixed mortgage, you need to bring the 10-year down below 1% for me to refi. I got a two and seven ace. Dude, I'm never refiing unless the rates go to zero. So if that's true, that kickstart mechanism that gets you out of a recession when the Fed lowers rates is gone unless you have to have the money. What, what's the scenario? Again, it's kind of interesting in a way because it took a black swan event. I mean, even at, you know, Fed funds didn't go to zero effectively the way they did during COVID because we also had all of that QE too. I mean, so we had negative yielding rates all over the world. What We had like 17, 18 trillion or something. At some point. What would be a scenario in the not so distant future in this next cycle that we go into where you could see rates go back to zero, Fed funds? Like for some reason, the Fed has to take down from 5% to 4%, which would be them normalizing rates, really, if you think about it, because they're going to have to overshoot to the upside. The last time we saw Fed funds above 5% was right before the financial crisis. The last time we saw them above 6% was before the dot-com implosion. So again, I mean, it is upper left, you know, lower right. Now, we, you know, if we mean revert, that means we probably come back to 3% or something. What would be a scenario where we go back to zero? And will another Fed do that again? Because ultimately, like this time around, because the, the 
pandemic was such a weird situation here. The ricochet that we had back up was something that we did not see after the financial crisis. We didn't see it after the dot-com sort of thing. It was kind of a slow burn in each of those. So according to the New York Fed last Friday, household debt hit a new record. Auto loans, credit card debt is becoming delinquent. We are in a generationally levered system. If you include some of the private credit markets and private equity markets that the Fed doesn't have oversight over, I think it's even more significant You've got an economy where inventories have been built up because there were shortages. Uh, you know, last summer, Dan, if you needed 10 semiconductors, how many do you think you ordered? Yeah, 20. 100. Yeah. Right? yeah. Like 20, you couldn't 50, get enough, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So that kickstarted the production. So you were coming into the middle part of 2022 with a ramping Fed, bloated inventories, and a levered system. I'm not sure how that gets fixed here because it takes money. Forget about the what we learned in B school, which I never went to. You know, I went to Lemoyne. I, that was good. Lemoyne, I'm in Syracuse. That's my hometown. Great school. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> We're from actually. You're from the next door town. I'm from Marcellus. You're from Camellus. Right? Matter of fact. Anyway, net net. Um, <laughs> we digress. Net net. I I try to. What I try to do that's different is I try to use this from a common sense point of view instead of what's in a textbook. How is the Dwyer household going to get more money? If my income's coming down because I'm at peak income, if I can't get it from a bank, if the market's gotten smoked, even the bond market's gotten smoked, Dan, where am I going to get the money to do things? Now, if you're a company, you go out into the market. Now, that's been able to happen in the credit markets, but not the equity market. It's been an incredibly slow period for equity capital markets, meaning money raises. Companies need money. Households are going to need money. How do they get back to zero? If that really all hits at once, where the excess use of leverage just, listen, if you look at a chart on the unemployment rate, it goes down on an escalator and up on an elevator. It doesn't, it, it always starts from, I heard on TV, another thing that kind of drove me nuts. I heard on TV, financial TV this morning, the industrials are acting too well to go into a recession. Go back and look at a chart of the industrials and what they do right before a recession every time. People say the dumbest shit. I said, you know, there was a tweet yesterday and I apologize if I called your tweet dumb shit over the weekend. Someone tweeted at me. Guys, it was like in response to our podcast, you know, trade the market we have, not the one you want. I'm like, you know, thinking to myself, you know what? I've heard that so many times. It's so stupid, okay? And I'll tell you why. Because you know what? Let's go with a Gretzky quote. How about skating to where the puck's gonna be rather than, you know, you know what I mean? Like, like we can come up with so many different, like, you know, dumb idioms or whatever you want to say. To me, you know, I think what's happened in the last, call it six to eight weeks in the markets is something that's been very unnatural. And one of the reasons I believe that to be the case is I'm looking at all of these retail investors or all these guys who are anonymous on Twitter and this and that, whatever. Everyone's taking victory laps. They're loving that all the experts, and I'm doing air quotes here, people, you know, the people that go on CNBC yeah, or Bloomberg like or anything like that, you know, they're all wrong. Like all the strategists, well, all dude, the smart guys, coming into, all the billionaire investors. What was the number one sector that everybody had to be in coming into 2023? Energy. 100% energy. Where was the geographic region everybody had to be in coming into 2023? International. Outside Emerging markets, international, yep, yep, China's yep, reopening, yep, right? Yep. Guess what the two biggest underperformers are? Energy and international. <laughs> so this is the setup that went into that October low. We had the Global Growth Conference at Canaccord Genuity in the, in the middle of August. Mm-hmm. I was ready to jump off the boat that I went fishing on because I gave the speech and it was like I sound now, economically bad and even market bad. Market was going up like 2% a day for the three days after the speech. I wanted to jump off the boat. That was an overbought setup going into what I called the fall fall. Remember uh, remember the line that the market's never retraced 50% of a bear market and gone back to the lows? Yeah. Well, guess what it did? 
That happened in August, and then it went back to the lows. So around the lows, here was the setup. We're going into the fourth quarter. In the history of the markets, when it's been an S&P 500 index, so since 1957, anytime the first three quarters, so January 1st through the end of September, anytime that you've been down more than 18% through that period, you've rallied between 8 and 12% in the fourth quarter. So I put out the year-end rally call. So at the very end of November, the S&P was up 13.65%. Yep. That's above 12%, Dan. Yes, it was. It, and that means that you got to pull that in. Guess where we are from that price? With all the the, the bullishness You're and bearishness. You're at the same spot. You're at 4,000. Literally yeah. about the same yeah. spot. It's 1.6% below where it was on December 2nd. Remember, it's about the data. If you're listening to this podcast, for the love of God, don't do anything based on what Dan says or I say or anybody else says. Do what you think is right and just use our information is potential backdrop. I do the research. I don't read all the research because I want to do it myself. Our friend Carter Worth put this out a week or two ago. It was the S&P 500, which now we're, you know, again, we're at 4,000 here. But 23 months ago, okay, in March, it was probably early to mid-March of 2021, you know where the S&P was? 4,000. Okay, so it got to 4,800. It went as low as, let's say, 3,350 or so. Okay, so we're probably like at the midpoint of that range. I can do that math, you know, and you think about everything that's happened. Okay, you think of that all the 2021 stimulus with rates being where they were and all the QE. And then you think of 2022, like you just said it, the fastest increase in Fed funds from zero to effectively, let's call it 5%, where we're going to be at the March meeting. And then all of that QE. E, that's now being reversed a bit. Okay, so it's just taking liquidity out of the market, and we're at 4,000. All right, so let's do some math here because I know you like data. All right, so let's talk about S&P earnings right now. All right, so some of those inflationary inputs that were weighing on margins, okay, like headwinds to S&P earnings. We know that a disproportion of the largest companies of their sales and expected growth come internationally, right? So a strong dollar is something that we had. We had you know high input costs, including wages and the like here. Where are we with S&P earnings? Where do you think 2022 shakes out? Okay, like so. What's the number so we can kind of put something around there? It's like right now, I think consensus is still. I was gonna say two twenty, but where do you think it actually settles out? Right around that. You're eighty percent of the way through the earnings, so it's all pretty well settled out. It'll be right around two twenty. Okay, and so right now, some strategists have are expecting twenty twenty three S and P earnings below $200. And I can see that. So I, I have an earnings wizard and my earnings wizard made a spreadsheet Who is your wizard? Me. Does he wear a hat? Does he have one of those like hats? <laughs> he what, sure what? as heck has a great earnings wand. He knows how to figure out the data. So he built a spreadsheet for me where I can adjust the top line, margin assumption, tax rate, and buyback assumption. And it spits out what the S&P 500 operating earnings estimate should be. So when I do that on the most likely scenario, which I put out for my year ahead forecast, I came up with $210 a share. That still assumes a double digit margin for the S&P 500. If we do end up in recession, I'm saying my number's optimistic, because if we do end up in recession, that'll be the first time in the history of the S&P 500 operating earnings that you've had a double digit margin in a recession. It's usually around 7% or lower. If I did those numbers, you're well below 200. So my 210 estimate I think is right because I think the first half will be weak and it'll start to reaccelerate in the second half. Because if I'm right about a recession, you'll get the Fed to come in and goose it. Don't you need, though, for all of this to happen in that scenario, don't you need to get 
like strategists totally off sides? Don't you have to start seeing, you know, $200 consensus for 2023 down 7% year over year or 195 and, and guys and gals tripping over each other to kind of lower those Probably. estimates? You know what I mean? A little well, bit. Well, you've got to reverse this soft landing scenario. Here, I'll give the listeners three things to look at. The yield curve is inverted. Everybody in the universe is sick of bucks. hearing about that. So I have a an indicator that I use that shows the percentage from my friends at Ned Davis, the percentage of yield curves that are inverted. 86.7% of possible yield curves are inverted. Any reading 55% or above has led to a recession each time. So it's not just one yield curve because people love to cherry pick which yield curve they want to use. It's all of them. So that means any lending institution, no matter what yield curve they're using, they're not going to lend to you to lose money. Okay, so you're not getting the money there. The leading economic indicators, the conference board leading economic indicators. I went back and I looked at that going all the way back to the 50s, the 1966, the 1995, the 2016 soft landings were nowhere near where we are negatively now in the conference board leading economic indicators. Anytime we've been at minus six, which we're now at, you've been in or right near a recession, right? The ISM manufacturing data, the percentage of industries that are reporting positive outlook, anytime it's hit this level, you've been in a recession or getting close to one. There's so many indicators that I find. And the final stat that we started out with, you know, how do you do this? Here's the stat that's in the background for me. The S&P 500 has never bottomed before the two-year U.S. Treasury yield made a peak. Okay, I'll repeat that. The S&P 500 has never made the low of a bear market cycle when it's been down more than 19%. It's never made the low before the two-year U.S. Treasury yield made its peak. The U.S. Treasury yield is making its peak today. That makes the October low. It'll be historically unique if that October low is the low. Let's say today doesn't make a peak. It closes it, not a peak. It happened on November 11th. So it's still the same outcome. It'll be historically unique if October is the low relative to interest rates. Maybe it's different this time, but over my career, I stick with the data instead of what I think. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank NA, NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Let's talk about multiples, okay? So in your lifetime, 
has a bear market ever bottomed at 18 times forward. So I'm looking here at our main man, John Butters over there at Facts that the forward 12 month PE ratio for the S&P 500 is 18. It is below its five-year average of 18 and a half, but it's above its 10-year average of 17.2. Okay, so that's where we're trading right now with the S&P, what, off 10% off of those October lows. You could do some easy math there on, on the numbers that we just laid out for 2022 S&P earnings if it does settle out at 219 or something like that. So does the bear market bottom with a high teens multiple on a forward basis, okay, on a trailing basis, it's higher. And then the other question I have for you is that, okay, so the recession kind of call for 2023 seems to be at least in the investor set off the table, the way they've been buying equities with impunity, okay? But a lot of the smartest strategists, including you, think that it's still on the table. It might've just been pushed out a quarter or so. So how do markets bottom in front of recession? sessions historically. Have you looked at that data a little bit? So what I do is I use a practical application of macroeconomic data with a sprinkling of history and tactical movement. So I look at what's happened in the past. There's never been a time where the S&P 500 has bottomed before a recession even began. This whole call, Dan, I've said for the last year is all about recession. If you believe a recession is coming, you don't chase ramps, but you also don't want to puke dips right? This is the kind of environment we're in. You wait for extremes, but the S&P has never made the low before peak in the two-year, and the S&P has never made the low before recession began. Let's do this last thing here. And this is a little exercise. Shout out to a lot of people who've been tweeting at us, emailing to us, just saying, listen, you guys, you sound like a bit like an echo chamber. This is Guy, Danny, and myself. And a lot of the fine guests that you've been having on basically are either confirming how you feel or you're confirming their calls. I'm not in the camp, and I was never in the camp that we were going to crash. I will tell you this, though, that late January, early February, the way things were just skipping up, okay, like stocks up 50 100% off their lows, trading at ridiculous valuations, still down 70%, 80% from their highs. And, and that's the interesting thing. I think that's the thing that gets people who don't do this for a living, gets them off sides a little bit. They're like, it's back. Okay. How could we be wrong? You know, my view right now is at the very least, we kind of retest that 3650. That is the October low. That pre pandemic high in the SP 500 is 3,400. Let's say I'm closer to 200 bucks in SP earnings for 2022. That I don't do the modeling. I don't have a wizard or anything like that. But let's just say I think we're going to be down high single digits over 2022 for 2023. Okay. And if I want to put like a 15 multiple on that, you know what I mean? Like that gets me back to the pre-pandemic highs, I'm not calling for 3000 I'm not calling for 2750 There's some people doing that. So I actually, if we get back to the October lows, I will start dollar cost averaging on some stock. And then I'm not pressing that low. I might say, hey, listen, have at it. We might go to 3000 but things are going to be really bad all over the place. When so- bad news is becoming bad news, you don't want to be aggressively negative. You want to look for opportunities to attack the market. How could we be wrong in the next couple of weeks? Let's just say the S&P touches unchanged and that's it. Okay, so another 4%, 4.25% or something like that, all right? And then the data, 
okay, let's just say sentiment, let's just say a whole host of things, let's say some of these geopolitical things that seem to be headwinds, no doubt about it, you know, they they get a little bit better, and then we're kind of off the races. You know the stats, you hear the data, how infrequent it is that the S&P is down two years in a row. Now, I would tell you that throw that out the window with what's happened to rates and kind of redoing the 2020-2021 versus what happened in 2022 versus the easing versus the tightening, so that could clearly happen. I'm saying, how could we be wrong right now that maybe the lows are just a couple S&P 100 points away. It'll just be historically unique if that's true. That's my play. Uh, you know, where I'll be wrong is if all of a sudden this is a historically unique time frame in the yield curve inversions, the leading economic indicators, the manufacturing data, bank lending standards, all these things that I've talked about, real liquidity, money supply, they're all going to be wrong. And the economy is good and inflation comes down to their 2%. And it's trending there and unemployment stays historically low. But I want to address something you said up front on the question, the echo chamber. Okay, so for the listeners that don't know me, I'm typically considered the permable because for 10 years plus, I was because money was going in favor. People don't know me. I know you from back in the great financial crisis with Danny, my buddy Mike. I was as negative then as I've been in the last year. And then again in 00 to 02. And the reason is it's about the money. You have to have a mechanism where you can be enabled to look through the coming economic weakness and earnings weakness. And the only thing that historically does that is a very aggressively stimulative Fed. We have the opposite today. So it's an maybe it's an echo chamber. You know, you and I used to battle on fast money at times when money was flowing because you well, were worried you were, about something. You know, and, really and funny. We would, you so know. that was me being a pundit and that was you being a very seasoned strategist. And your point was it's going to be bottom left, upper right, and there's going to be some tactical opportunities to, to move money around. That means get underweight to if you have the ability to get short or or, or make a view. And, and that was the thing I think that you and I used to go back and forth on a little bit, a little bit, but you did it really well. And, and then you well, we also- we have fun doing it. We're no, friends. Well, but I it's think that's not how an you, echo chamber. That's what how you I tease it out though, of. but that's how you t kind of tease out these differences. Of and course. I think that was really helpful. And listen, you know, and for our listener right now, I mean, I wish I could sit here and play devil's advocate, but I read your work, okay? And and you and I talk and, and I see you on TV, you make a lot of sense. So There's I'm not going to There's nothing worse in this business, Dan, than devil's advocate because it makes it sound like it's a plausible case. That's why I don't have an S&P target anymore. That was made for TV. You're right or you're wrong. It's the silliest thing I've ever seen. Trying to guess the right earnings number and the right multiple. It's just a wild guess. And it's, it's not fair to the investors. We get on there like we know what we're doing and we know what they should do. I don't know what your financial wherewithal is. I don't know how much money you have. What's your time frame? Do you have kids going to college? I mean, the idea that I'm going to come on TV or on a podcast or, or any of us should say, I think you should do this. Well, who the hell is you? No, and I think I, the listen, problem is, is, and that's what I love about you and, and, and your crew guy. Guy is the best. Danny Moses, Guy's the best. Guy's fine. Danny's okay. <laughs> uh, listen, well, here's, here's the deal, Tony. Um, you flew down here. We did the pod. You're <laughs> well, doing... I was down for, for full disclosure, I was down here. For I'm business. Housed here, but... <laughs> I got you. I got you. But next time, we're going to do a free-for-all with Danny and Guy. These guys are in parts unknown, too, but I, I really do appreciate you coming in the studio. I appreciate this conversation. I appreciate your transparency, and you know, you just just kind of tell it the way it is here, man. If I'm doing it for my ego by now, Danny, I got bigger issues than my market call. I think next time what we should do is get you and Guy and Danny 
and go up into the plane and do the interview in the plane. Well, we have a little thing, you know, in Fast Money because at the NASDAQ, we have an elevator, right? That that takes you, you know, that oh, elevator. Yeah, sure. We go up there and sometimes we'll all leave the green room. We'll get in the elevator together and I'll look around and be like, look at everybody in here, like dead money protocol. I was like, if something goes wrong here, like what, you know, what are we going to do here? So hopefully we don't have dead money protocol. All right. all right. Tony Dwyer, thank you for returning to On The Tape. Thank you very much, Dan, for having me. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.